Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, and it is such a treat to be here today. I have the honor of welcoming Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Doctor, how are you? I'm well, thanks. It is such a treat to have you here. For those tuning in for the first time, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, he's a biologist, right? But he's also been called by some, some uh, perhaps the most controversial scientist alive. Um, his research strongly challenges the paradigms of conventional science, and he's the author of multiple, let's actually get zoom in on that, maybe about 80-odd, maybe more scientific papers. And he's written 10 books on science, many of which have been bestsellers worldwide. Um, and these have actually all helped the trajectory towards developing his popular theory um, on morphic resonance, which I can't wait to dive into. Um, a lot of this research has come through asking for answers to questions that traditional science has actually had difficulty explaining. He lives in London with his wife, Jill. He's got two sons, and uh, his latest book is called Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Uh, my personal introduction to Rupert's work was The Science Delusion, and I'd love to start there if we could, um, where you start talking about The Science Delusion. Can you maybe elaborate on that to us a little bit? Well, basically, the science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving any of the details to be filled in. And this is a kind of common belief system. It's the kind of, it comes like the standard installation with a university degree. This is like the default uh, a program that's installed in university graduates. And it's basically the philosophy of mechanistic materialism. It came to dominate science by the late 19th century, and it's now almost unchallenged as a kind of worldview. And in fact, most people don't realize it's a worldview or a belief system. They just think it's the truth. Um, and what I show in my book, The Science Delusion, is that there are 10 dogmas that modern science is based on. And these are just taken for granted. But when you look at them scientifically, and find out, are they really true? Um, then it turns out that science has grown out of all 10 of them. So we've got this peculiar position that there's a set of unquestioned assumptions that science has already broken out of. But the trouble is that the dogmatic framework actually inhibits scientific inquiry and discovery. So my argument is that not only is this worldview uh, turned out to be false, uh, it actually is bad for science. I mean, I didn't probably this is not meant to go through all 10 dogmas, but I could mention a few for those who are not familiar. Please. Uh, and the starting one is that nature is a machine. The universe is a machine. Animals and plants are machines. We are machines. Our brains are computers. Our hearts are pumps, and so on. Um, 
And this is a metaphor about nature that was started in the 17th century, the mechanistic philosophy, um, treating nature as if it's inanimate machinery. Uh, the thing is, it's not really a testable scientific theory, it's just a metaphor. And it's actually much more appropriate to think of nature as an organism, um, as alive. I mean, the whole universe is like a developing organism. It starts small with the Big Bang, a bit like the hatching of the cosmic egg. It's been growing and expanding ever since. The Earth, Gaia, is more like an organism than a machine. And, of course, living organisms, animals and plants, are more like organisms than machines. And as soon as we think that way, um, we're liberated from this extremely narrow view of nature as just mechanical and inanimate. Then another assumption is that nature is purposeless, that evolution has no purpose or meaning, we have no purpose or meaning. Again, that's just simply follows from the machine metaphor. Um, nature's a machine, machines have no purposes of their own. Then there's another assumption, matters unconscious. The whole universe, stars, galaxies, the cosmos, everything is unconscious except us. So um, somehow human brains miraculously become conscious within a completely unconscious, inanimate, purposeless universe. And maybe other brains, I mean animals, dogs, cats, have a bit of consciousness, but not as much as us. So the assumption is that with the possible exception of extraterrestrial aliens or little green men, the only conscious beings in the universe that we know of, or really conscious ones, are ourselves. And we look out into a completely unconscious universe with no forms of consciousness beyond our own. Again, that's simply an assumption. And one of the things that modern science does worst is explain consciousness. It doesn't really have a theory of consciousness. It's a hard problem. Nothing but the brain. Um, it's the hard problem. Anyway, those are just some examples. And the thing is that when you begin to question these assumptions, all sorts of new scientific questions open up, which can be do, research can be done, new kinds of inquiry can go on. Um, and I think science can be liberated from this dogmatic framework. That's why the same book, The Science Delusion in the United States, is called Science Set Free, because I think it's possible to think of a new kind of science that's more fun and, and, and actually more close to reality. Yeah, I love the book. It almost uh, spoke to me for a renaissance towards a method of inquiry bringing science back to the inquiry of the world that we live in. Um, and I find your work in terms of, you know, acknowledging the spiritual aspect of, you know, there is just so much space for science to grow into. What does it potentially grow into is mm. a deep question, you know, especially when I was, you know, interfacing with a lot of the lecturers at my university, some, some of the doctorate, you know, is this question that some of the, uh, I would using the word better is an interesting one, probably not the most apt word, but some of the most uh, renowned uh, researchers that I was um, exposed to, I consistently had this question is like, they all had some sort of spiritual background. Um, and collectively, I just had this curiosity and they were talking, yes, well, you know, it's science is growing into something. What is it growing into? What is it inquiring about? And I think it's fascinating because, um, you know, you were mentioning before that certain things are almost unchallenged about consciousness. And uh, I recently watched a talk of yours that perhaps maybe the sun is conscious. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, if you, you see the, the, the view that's normal, I, I just mentioned, is that the whole of nature is unconscious, matter is unconscious, the stars, the solar systems, the, the galaxy, these are all just mechanisms following mathematical laws blindly and purposelessly. Well, in traditional societies all around the world, it's been taken for granted that the sun and the stars are conscious beings. Now, we've been educated to believe that's a childish, childish superstition, that you know primitive people believe that because they haven't had the benefit of a modern scientific education. Children believe it. That's why they grow the, draw the sun with a smiley face because um, they haven't yet grown up enough to realize they live in an inanimate world. So we're all trained by any university graduate who's been trained to smile superciliously at the idea the sun is conscious. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yet 
Yeah, in many traditions, the sun is a conscious being. For the Greeks, it was a sun god, Apollo. In India, the sun, Surya, is a conscious being. And I lived in India for seven years, and every day I do a yoga practice. Lots of people do it. Salutation to the sun, which is a prostration to the sun. And that's for real in India. People you know, are prostrating to the sun. And the Gayatri mantra, one of the foundational mantras of Hinduism, is, of course, uh, an invocation to the sun to illuminate our meditation, the glorious light of the sun. It, not saying that the sun is God. It's saying that the light of God shines through the sun. Mm. Um, and it has a kind of a divine nature. Anyway, that's the mythological view in all around the world is that the sun is a god or goddess, a living being, a conscious living being. And then if we look at science, um, the usual view in science is that the interface between our brain and our conscious mind is the electromagnetic activity in the brain. Most people think it's that that's the principal interface, which is why electroencephalographs measure brain scan, look at these frequencies uh, in the brain, and they change according to your state of mind or mental activity. Well, the sun has much more complex electromagnetic patterns sweeping through it than our brains do. And uh, if the sun's conscious, then a possible interface are these electromagnetic patterns in the sun. Um, and, and if the sun is conscious, then I suppose it would think about its body of the solar system, and the sun could modulate what happens in the solar system if it decides to shoot out a coronal mass ejection or a giant flare towards the Earth. It could take out our whole communication systems and cause electric power grids to melt down all over the planet. Um, the sun could do that anytime it wants. Uh, so far, it hasn't done. And who knows, maybe all those people saying the Gayatri Mantra in India are helping to stave this off. <laughs> Keep it stabilised. Yes. And, uh, uh, so I think that, you, you know, and if the sun's conscious, then the other stars would be. And if the stars are conscious, then the whole galaxy might be a conscious being. The mm. stars in the galaxy like cells in the body of the galaxy. And the whole cosmos may be conscious. So there may be many levels and kinds of consciousness beyond our own. Um, so the assumption that it's the sun's not conscious is not something science has proved. Mm. It hasn't discussed it. It's dismissed without a second's discussion by most, mm. most people who've been scientifically educated. And moreover, they treat their out-of-hand dismissal of this possibility as being supremely scientific. Mm. In my exact opposite, it's supremely unscientific to make an assumption that you don't even question. It would be um, a fertile ground for a solid inquiry. Yes, exactly. I mean, one could actually inquire into this. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, if the sun's conscious, could we prove it? Well, I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, uh, we can't disprove it. Uh, I, I mean, uh, scientifically, the consciousness of the sun and the stars is an open question, in my view. Can't, it's not proved one way or the other. Um, the, the standard view is just an assumption, not a proof. Mm -hmm. um, but how could we test it or prove it? Well, uh, one idea that crossed my mind was that um, if the sun does indeed have a kind of consciousness with which we can interact through our own consciousness, which is why... You know, in India, people do the Gayatri Mantra, and these are invocations to the sun. They're actually addressing the sun. And, uh, you know, in many parts of the world, they have ways of addressing or interacting with the sun. Then what if we say to the sun, or ask people who are experts in communicating with the sun, okay, we'll show us a sign. Then if we, uh, could you show a particular pattern of solar flares or uh, electrical activity that would be, recognizable to us and if we ask for this could you interact with us and 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 send back a signal and maybe the sun would send an unusual kind of signal something measurable yep measurable signal and we could then say okay we got that now what about another one and uh, and so they're not just random fluctuations but if we were able to interact with the sun and get measurable signals in response to questions or requests this would suggest something's going on, which simply wouldn't be on the existing scientific map.
mm. uh, would be testable scientifically through measurable signals. Which is... So I'm just saying this is a, a possibility. I mean, I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm just mm. saying when we break out of the dogmatic materialism of science, new questions open up, and this is one of them. Which is an interesting question, because I'm intrigued by this very question just in this conversation alone, so it definitely deserves some inquiry. I um, would like to jump start from there, you know, going from the idea that the sun is conscious and we are conscious and we have these different levels of consciousness. I uh, heard somewhere recently you were in an interview and you mentioned that um, you found that perhaps atheism is a kind of depressing worldview and that you adhere to something that is not specifically, but perhaps something a bit more Hindu in the in the nature of, you know, the way consciousness is embedded within, you know, the Atman consciousness and a collective consciousness. Is that, am I correct to assume that? Yes. Well, you see, I think the, the standard materialistic atheism, most atheists uh, are materialists. That means they believe that matter is the ultimate reality, that matter is unconscious, and that minds are nothing but the activity of brains, and the mind is all inside the head. I mean, that's the basic materialist worldview, and that um, nature is evolved with no purpose or meaning. There's no consciousness out there. And if people think that God or gods or goddesses or spirits or angels or saints actually exist um, in some other realm, then it's just a fantasy that's actually just nothing but activity inside their own brain. And that is the standard materialist atheist worldview, which most university graduates are sort of encouraged to take for granted as the default position. So uh, it, is, it, it's, it is depressing. It's depressing because, first of all, it says we live in a pointless universe. Mm. Secondly, we've come here by chance. The evolution is a matter of chance mutation and natural selection. Um, Thirdly, our mind's nothing but our brain, and uh, it's isolated inside our heads. Our minds echo around inside our skulls, but uh, they don't really connect with anything else except through our words and actions. Um, then it also usually says um, things like telepathy and psychic powers are rubbish and can't possibly exist because the mind's nothing but the brain and therefore can't have effects at a distance. Um, so it usually involves people getting locked into a kind of dogmatically so-called sceptical position uh, of denialism, of, of psychic phenomena. It also means when we die, everything just goes blank. The, the mind's wiped out when the brain stops functioning. Um, there's no uh, point in praying or in most spiritual practices because they involve a belief in beings beyond ourselves and no such beings exist. So it means people, are, they feel that their life is meaningless, pointless, they're separated. Um, there's, um there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nothing, no bigger purpose in life. And they're basically isolated inside their heads. Um, well, these are all depressing thoughts. And I think it's no coincidence that the main disease of advanced industrial civilizations is depression. I mean, the main mental disease, millions of people are on antidepressants in mm -hmm. most westernized countries and no doubt in Australia as well. Um, so I think that's a, a very um, depressing worldview. And I think that the um, what contrasts with atheism is that the idea that there are forms of consciousness beyond our own, all religions, have the idea there are forms of consciousness beyond our own. In shamanism, 
there's a whole range of spirits um, which shamans can contact in trance. Um, in Hinduism, there's the idea that the whole universe has an underlying consciousness, Brahman, which is the um, consciousness from which all things come forth. And our own consciousness is like a fractal version of that. And our minds can relate to this ultimate mind, particularly in meditation, one of the subjects I discuss in science and spiritual practices. Um, and of course, in Christianity, there's the idea that the whole universe comes forth from God, from the divine source, and that uh, consciousness underlies and permeates all nature. I mean, this is in, in Buddhism, although it doesn't have an actual God in the same sense as other religions, the ultimate reality is a conscious reality, not an unconscious one. So all religions have the idea there are forms of consciousness out there beyond our own and that we can form a link with them. And that's what a lot of spiritual practices are about. So um, what they do and why I've written two books about spiritual practices is that they give us a greater sense of connection of uh, being linked to something greater than ourselves. And generally speaking, feeling connected and linked to something greater than oneself makes people happy. And feeling disconnected and, uh, and alienated from everything else is, generally speaking, what makes people unhappy and depressed. Therefore, um, it's not a surprise that a lot of research on religious and spiritual practices has shown that people who have these practices are happier, healthier, and live longer on average than those that don't. I think that's fascinating as well. And the one thing that uh, I can feel us already weaving into um, spiritual practices and, and uh, why they work, but one thing I wanted to tune in was one of my deepest fascinations from what your readings was the, the claim that, you know, one of the dogmas is that the laws of nature are completely fixed. And I think as we're talking about, um, you know, consciousness and our understanding and our relationship with these things and realizing that perhaps, you know, even the world around us is conscious and it is growing and it as like, it, you know, it seemed very intuitive when I read your book, but before yeah. to that, I was adhering to the same dogma, which was, you know, everything around me is fixed. I am growing. I am developing, I am maturing. <laughs> but then immediately after reading your book, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Perhaps everything around me is maturing as I'm maturing, you know. <laughs> so it was a fascinating realisation. Well, well, I think it is, you see. The, the thing is that the, if we look at the kind of 18th century Enlightenment view, basically that saw human beings proceeding, progressing through science and technology and through social reform. Mm -hmm. That was sort of Enlightenment rationalism on which our educational system is based. Uh, and this was usually associated with a kind of anti-religious stance. Um, so, you know, science and reason are leading humanity forward through economic growth. And this is the ideology of every government in the world, after all. And it has had enormously transformative effects on the planet and on people for good and for ill. Um, but that general view, uh, this uh, kind of enlightenment rationalism, sees humans as progressing, but nature is not progressing. Then in the 19th century, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace extended this vision to the whole of life, evolution by natural selection. So the idea of a progressive development was extended from humanity to the whole of biology. And we saw, you know, at one time, the first life was in the primeval slime, you know, simple cells, and then life got more and more complicated, and then life on land, then reptiles, then mammals, and so on, and then humans. Uh, we have this grand developmental evolutionary picture of life, but until 1966, physicists said, well, that may be true of life, it's not true of the universe. The universe is not evolving. In fact, it's doing the opposite. It's devolving, heading towards a thermodynamic heat death. Everything eventually does freeze up. And uh, the universe is going nowhere. It's basically an eternal machine that's slowly running out of steam. And that was the official worldview until 1966 when the Big Bang Theory became orthodox, and that cosmological revolution then extended the evolutionary vision to the whole of the universe, not just humans, not just life, but the entire universe, mm -hmm. starting very small, billions of degrees centigrade, less than the size of the head of a pin. Um, the Big Bang 
uh, then it led to an expansion and a cooling of the universe and the appearance of all the structures and forms that we now see in the universe today. But you see, within the scientific worldview, one of the ten dogmas I discuss in the science division is the idea that the laws of nature are all fixed. They were all there at the moment of the Big Bang. This is a hangover from the older cosmology, which saw the universe as an eternal machine. Um, if the universe is radically evolutionary, why shouldn't the laws of nature evolve as well? And in fact, the minute you think about it, um, you realize the idea of law of nature is very anthropocentric, and only humans have laws. In fact, only civilized humans. Tribes have customs. Um, so uh, we projected this idea of eternal laws of nature. is based on a rather bad form of theology in the 17th century that God is the universal emperor, makes up the laws of the universe and makes sure everything obeys them because he's also the universal law enforcement agency. <laughs> um, that's basically what materialists and atheists are buying into, a kind of discredited theology. Um, and so they're essentially assuming the laws of nature are all fixed. Well, I don't think they're fixed, and I don't think they're laws, I think they're habits, and my idea of morphic resonance is really the idea there's a kind of memory in nature, mm. and the so-called laws of nature are habits that evolve along with nature, along with the universe. So, yes, you and I are personally developing and changing, all of nature is evolving and changing around us, and evolution on Earth is changing very rapidly at the moment, owing to human influence, the Anthropocene. Um, the whole cosmos is developing and evolving, and the regularities, the patterns in nature are also developing and evolving as, uh, as habits. Um, so I think that view of nature makes sense of our own lives and of what we see around us and of the whole cosmos. Uh, and the idea that all the laws are completely fixed um, actually leads to contemporary scientists getting tangled in all sorts of extraordinary speculation. I mean, I mean this, the debate in cosmology at the moment is extraordinary. It's a bit like how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. It's how many universes, how many universes can explain uh, the world we know. Because uh, they assume all the laws of nature are fixed, and then they have the, what's called the anthropo... Anthro, uh, uh, what's it called? The... Anthropo, not anthropomorphic, anthropic principle, the cosmological anthropic principle. The universe is just right for us to exist in it, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Um, and the laws of nature could have been different and the constants of nature. So how come they were all fixed exactly right at the moment of the Big Bang? You see, they assume that either there's a, a kind of external engineering type god who fine-tunes the laws of nature twiddling the knobs of the constants till they're all exactly right for us but most scientists don't like that because they can want to get rid of god altogether um, so in any case that's not the kind of god that most uh, believers in god believe in a kind of external engineer they believe that god's in nature not just outside it anyway leaving aside that question um if they assume there's no God to fine-tune the laws of nature, then um, how could it be? Is it just a coincidence that out of all the trillions of possible universes, we happen to be in the one that is right for us? They say, well, no, it's not a coincidence. There actually are trillions of universes, um, the multiverse, and the only one we can know about is the one that's right for us. So there's nothing special about it except the fact we're in it. But all these other universes actually exist. Now, that's what most leading cosmologists in Britain and no doubt Australia and elsewhere actually believe at the moment, that there are trillions of unobserved universes for which there's not a shred of evidence. <laughs> and uh, why do they think that? So they can explain the laws of nature being fixed at the moment of the Big Bang. But you see, if you just give up that completely unnecessary and unprovable assumption that the laws of nature are fixed at the moment of the Big Bang, the whole of this universe, uh, multiverse debate just melts away like the morning fog. So it just seems a completely unnecessary, pointless discussion and trillions of hypothetical universes just dissolve and vanish. And we're back to the one that we're in now. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> which is a nice grounded place to be. I am, um, you know, I'm acutely aware of the fact that we're having this conversation um, between yourself and myself, and perhaps we are just an isolated pocket on the fringe, but I don't feel like we are. Do you feel like, you know, your books are being more and more well-received? Um, they banned your TED Talk when it only had 35,000 views, and then now I've looked online and it's received about four and a half to six million views. Do you think that we are undergoing a bit of a spiritual renaissance? Well, I think we are, actually, and that's why um, I wrote these two most recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, because um, I think that, first of all, people's unquestioning belief in mechanistic materialism is beginning to wane, partly because of the environmental crisis. You know, the idea is that we're so smart, we've figured it all out, we can conquer nature, we can do anything through science and technology, there's limitless progress. Well, you know, there's climate change, there's all sorts of problems that are coming up um, that we, people hadn't thought about before, and um, it's not as simple as it seemed, you know, onwards and upwards forever, um, uh, with science and the vanguard. Um, and then, you know, uh, so that's one reason. Um, Another reason is I think that many people are finding their lives meaningless and depressing. Um, that's why depression is so common, as we discussed. Yeah. Um, a third reason is that the spiritual traditions of the whole world are now available to us. I mean, in Britain, for example, where I live, when I was a child, uh, I never met anyone who did yoga. And in fact, I'd never even heard of yoga or meditation for that matter. Um, and now millions of people do yoga and meditation, which grow out of the Indian tradition and have spread around the whole world. Mm. Um, so the, the spiritual practices, you know, here in London, there are people doing Hindu bhajan chanting, Tibetan meditation, you know, Zen meditation, you know, Peruvian shamanism with ayahuasca, you know, uh, you know, every kind of practice as well as our indigenous Christian practices. Um, there's a revival of pilgrimage to ancient sacred places going on all over Europe at the moment. Um, there are stirrings and, and there's now all this scientific research that shows that spiritual practices make people happier and healthier. Mm. Uh, so much so that uh, the new wave of atheists, people like Sam Harris, the younger atheists, uh, have taken up spiritual practices themselves. I mean, he's one of the so-called new atheists in the US. He's now giving online meditation courses. Got a meditation application. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the, the thing is that the... The idea that spiritual practice is good for you and that the scientific evidence shows that is not lost on a whole new generation of atheists. So old school atheists like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, just dismissed all spiritual practices as mm. a waste of time and so on. Foolish. New style atheists don't do that. They adopt some of these spiritual practices themselves because of, they have uh, measurable benefits and make them feel better. Um, so the debate has shifted. It's more subtle now. It's no longer, you know, totally pro or totally against. The the debate now is at the front line of this debate is things like what happens when you're meditating. If you have an experience of feeling that your consciousness is part of a greater consciousness, which can happen to people as, as they meditate and as the internal dialogue diminishes, then is this all something just happening inside your head? Nothing but a change in dopamine levels or neurotransmitter activity or changes in brain rhythms in different parts of the brain. Um, is it nothing but that? Um, or uh, are you really contacting a greater form of consciousness? Mm. And uh, the atheistic meditators would say it's nothing but the activity of their brain. And others, I mean, I meditate myself. I'm not an atheist. Uh, I think, yes, there are all these changes in brains, but it doesn't prove that it's nothing but the brain. And the fact that you can see me now, um, it means that when you see me and hear me, there are changes going on inside your brain, which could be measured with fMRI scanners and other brain scanning devices. Mm -hmm. um, and there's undoubtedly specific changes happening in your brain as a result of seeing and hearing me. But that doesn't prove that I'm nothing but 
uh, a product of your brain and don't really exist. At least I hope it doesn't prove that. <laughs> um, uh, so the, um, just the fact there are changes in the brain when people have these spiritual experiences doesn't prove they're nothing but changes in the brain. Um, so the, 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 the debate, now it's a much more interesting debate, and this is the debate I try and engage with in these recent books, because um, it's no longer you know, to the old style, sort of totally against all spiritual practice on the part of atheists and spiritual people credulously adopting all of them, at least within their in religious tradition. It's a much more interesting and differentiated um, set of issues. And I think that we're actually on the threshold of a new phase of spiritual evolution because it's possible to do these practices within religious traditions, and also outside them, if one prefers that. So this is a completely new situation that we're in. Yeah, and I think it's a, uh, it's a fascinating place to be, and especially your book services, um, in my humble opinion, a really good um, approach to, I guess, um, melding into, I know for myself, I kind of need to back myself into a scientific corner to really justify my spiritual practice. And uh, your yeah. book does a really good job of doing that. <laughs> um, I've always been a man of faith, but um, I've been fascinated by science. I'm an engineer by you know, qualification way back. And um, it, your book does really well. And the, there are some really interesting, like some many really interesting parts to it. Um, let's talk about, you know, we could start anywhere. We could go with perhaps, you know, why the ways to go beyond, you know, um, why is there a need to go beyond? Um, and how does something like sport or how does something like fasting <laughs> get us towards that? You can speak to either one of those or obviously meditations in there. Um, but yeah. Yeah, okay, well, look, there's sport. I, I mean, you're in Australia, and Australia is like one of the sports centres of the world, so uh, sport uh, would be a good one. I mean, what I mean by go, going beyond is going beyond the sense of our own limited self, uh, just me in my brain, in my limited body, in my limited social existence in, you know, in England in 2019 and so on. Yeah. Um, so... Well, what's happened with all these religious um, traditions, all of them uh, say that our life is part of a much greater reality, which is conscious, not unconscious, and that we contact that through meditation, through prayer, through a whole range of spiritual practices. Um, people often have these mystical experiences spontaneously. I mean, near-death experiences, for example, are more common than they've ever been before because thanks to modern medicine, a lot of people who would simply have died in the past now get resuscitated. And many of them remember experiences when they were supposedly dead of going into a realm of love, joy, bliss. Um, they have this spiritual experience lasting only a minute or two, but it changes their lives. And many people who've had a near-death experience say their whole life has changed as a result of it. Now, um, I think that's because uh, when people feel this sense of connection with a greater reality, um, which is what I mean by going beyond, going beyond our normal limited self, um, it feels more real, more true, and gives us this greater sense of connection, reduces fear, uh, reduces fear of death, and uh, usually has beneficial effects on people's lives, makes them more aware of their connection with other people and the earth, and less isolated and often less selfish. Well, the, I think the commonest way in which people actually undergo altered states of consciousness that make them feel part of something bigger in the modern world is not usually recognized as a spiritual practice at all, namely sports. Mm. Uh, when you look at sports, sports involve a very wide range of activities. They obviously involve things like football and cricket, um, team games. They also involve singles tennis where you've got you know, a game with just one or doubles tennis with two um, but they also include mountaineering and free diving and downhill skiing and these are activities which are not team games and they're not particularly necessarily competitive um, uh, people do them because they enjoy doing them they also include a whole range of new activities surfing um, ski boarder surfboarding um, you know, um, skateboarding and so forth. 
and sports also include things like deer stalking, hunting. Um, uh, so there's a very wide range of things. There are a lot of sports that are games, like football, but not all sports are games. Mountaineering is not a game, mm. or deer stalking is not a game. There are games that are not sports, like chess. Um, what makes a sport a sport is physical skill. Mm. And what's involved in sports is, as it were, the sheer enjoyment of physical skill, that you can't be good at a sport and really get into it unless you're good enough. Mastery, and, uh, you talk about in your book, yeah. A kind of mastery. But what happens to people who have this level of mastery when they're playing sports is quite often they find themselves in a state which they call being in the flow or in the zone, which is when their normal ego processes, sort of ruminations, worries, internal dialogue, switch off, and they're completely present. Now, a lot of people meditate because they want to get into that state of presence, um, as opposed to chattering mind and wandering thoughts. Um, but it can take quite a while to get into that state when meditating. But if you're doing sports, as a mountaineering friend of mine told me, when he was at the busiest time of his life, his mind was constantly active. Meditation didn't work for him. He just couldn't stop the mind working. But by the time he was 50 feet up a rock face, he said he was totally in the present. You know, it's just where the next finger hold is. <laughs> right. And, and I think for many people, sports are a way of coming completely into the present. Mm. And then, of course, in a team game like football, either playing it or if you're in a crowd in a stadium uh, and watching it, you're participating with others in the team you work together. It's not just about me. It's about how you relate to everything else. It takes you out beyond yourself into something that's the team. And then all the supporters, uh, their emotions go up and down together, you know, in, and they each feel themselves part of something greater than themselves through, you know, the excitement when a goal is scored, the depression when, you know, someone misses. Like a collective field. Mm. Like a collective field. And I think that's why people are so drawn to this. Um, it doesn't really matter in the bigger picture of cosmic truth whether Manchester United win or lose. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in, uh, if you're really involved in it emotionally, it's, it gives a tremendous sense of connection mm. and collective emotion. So I think sports are one of the ways that take people out of themselves. And uh, quite a number of people have mystical experiences in sports. I mean, a feeling of a great conscious presence, a greater unity, um, overwhelming love, and so on. These come to quite a number of people through mm -hmm. sport. Um, Michael Murphy, who founded the Esalen Institute in California in 1962, which is still the center of the human potential movement, felt that human evolution is now very much driven by sports, that actually the leading edge of human evolution, at least in physical sense, is in There's all these new sports that never existed in the past, like skydiving. I mean, no one until the 20th century uh, could leap out of a plane at 20,000 feet. Safely. I mean, you couldn't get to 20,000. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I suppose you could leap off a mountain, but, <laughs> but now you see you can do hang gliding. Yeah. There's new sports that involve new skills, new technologies, new muscular movements, mm -hmm. new uh, nerve muscle, you know, brain, hand, coordination, all that kind of thing. Um, so these are all uh, at the leading edge of human potential and human... New levels of daring as well. Yeah, absolutely. Levels of daring. And dangerous sports. I mean, the, the extreme sports, which are, again, a new phenomenon. Mm. Uh, living cultures obsessed with health and safety. And, uh, you know, the slightest thing has to have a risk evaluation, etc. So no one can trip over. And, you know, if you, if you trip over a branch in a park or something in the U.S., you can sue the... Someone's city. liable. <laughs> Someone somewhere is liable. <laughs> and so in this world where there's obsessive health and safety, the other side of the coin is the development of extreme sports where base jumping where people leap off high bridges, mountains, or skyscrapers with, and open their parachute at the very last minute and with a very high death rate. These extreme sports are very dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's something in people that needs that 
extreme. And I think one of the reasons for extreme sports, and, and including fast sports like motorcycle racing, is that, or downhill skiing is a more popular example, um, that if you're moving that fast, and you, you have to be totally in the present because the slightest lapse of concentration for even for a second or two, you're dead. So uh, you're forced into this extreme um, presence of, of the moment. And, um, and I think these extreme sports, precisely because they're dangerous, I mean, you, you, there's no option but to be totally concentrated in the present because, you know, if you don't, you're dead and you're out of the game, literally. Um, so um, the only survivors in, ext in extreme sports are people who can actually concentrate in that extremely focused way. Mm, to be present in the flow. I'm extremely intrigued by this conversation around flow um, and I'm going to use it as a bit of a segue. There is a gentleman that's on the podcast coming up soon um, by Jamie Will, Flow Genome Project, but um, there's something I wanted to ask you and uh, it just feels really right for me at the moment to ask. Um, one of my deepest philosophies that I'm harboring, I guess, is that I believe we are the universe looking in on ourselves. Um, that's a really great place for me to start any conversation I find. And if I can get on that same page with you, I'm very happy to continue a conversation. Otherwise, I find um, a lot of my philosophies are disjointed from that individual if they don't adhere to. And I'm not asking them to adhere to that, but that's kind of a, a starting ground for me that if we can start with, I am the universe looking in on itself from that place, you know, um, and then flow comes in in a really interesting context for me humbly because I find that flow is... I've experienced flow when I'm the particular lens that is afforded by the universe primed in a certain way to look in on myself. That flow is experienced because I'm utilizing the gifts that were most apt for me as the lens looking in on the universe was primed to utilize, if I'm making sense. Mm. Um, and so that's why I experience different people have a different sense of purpose because they're all here for a different reason. There is no two people that are the same. There is no two mm. purposes that are the same um, in that grand scheme of consciousness that, you know, that underlies mm. everything. We all have our own little contribution to that wave. Um, the reason I'm phrasing all of this in into one quick little synopsis is, you know, I would really love to understand in and around this because I love your work, <laughs> just to put that out there. I'd really love to understand where morphic resonance sits in and around all of that in, in your opinion. Well, morphic resonance is really uh, an idea about memory and nature. Mm. Uh, what it says is that anything similar, the similar pattern of activity in a self-organizing system, which mm. means molecules, plants, animals, flocks of birds, planets. There's lots of self-organizing systems in nature. Yep. That they resonate with similar sim, sim, uh, systems in the past uh, on the basis of similarity. So this memory means that information is carried from past to present across space and time based on similarity. So we're all part of a kind of flow of habit. Most of these, um, most things that morphic resonance operates on become habitual. The more often something's repeated, the more habitual it becomes, and the more habitual it becomes, the less conscious. So we're all creatures of habit. But against that background of habit, um, we also have uh, our minds, our conscious minds are open to new possibilities. And so evolution is an interplay between creativity and habit. Mm. So I think that we have habits individually, but those habits are closely tied in with the habits of all nature. I mean, a lot of the habits of ourselves that enable us to be living organisms have been continuously present in life for three billion years. I mean, the reason you and I are here is because we have a continuous series of ancestors going back over literally billions of years without a break. Um, <laughs> and some of those habits are, are so deeply embedded in us that they're totally unconscious the way the biochemistry of our cells works and so forth. Um, but we also have, uh, and so all nature has this kind of habit within it, molecules, crystals, um, you know, the behavior of gas clouds, you know, the behavior of solar systems, galaxies and all that. Um, but there's also always the openness to the new in every moment. Um, and that's where consciousness comes in, the, the possibility of creativity. And our conscious minds 
are concerned with looking at possibilities and choosing among possibilities. So I think that the way in which morphic resonance plays into the sense of connection with the universe and is that we ourselves experience habits as part of our nature and being. See habits in the behavior of dogs and cats and animals we know and in plants and in nature. We ourselves also have a certain freedom and we're not just creatures of habit. Um, I mean, a lot of what we do is habitual, but we all also have this freedom. And the same is true of nature at any moment. In, in, you know, there's a freedom in the weather, there's a freedom in the way a wave breaks, there's a freedom in everything that's happening in nature, except in man-made machines where we try and make them as predictable as possible. We want them to work the same way every time. And even then, they don't, you know, computers go wrong and, and so on. Um, but we get a distorted view of nature when the machine-centered view that science encourages us to adopt takes a peculiarly limited set of objects in, on, on, in nature, namely man-made machines, and says these are the models for everything. Well, they're not. Uh, they're made to be extraordinarily determinate um, and work the same way every time, whereas in nature and in our own lives, things don't work the same way every time because there's always that, um, that uh, you could sort of penumbra of freedom or creativity. Mm. So I think that our own lives are kind of fractals of the universe and that our own consciousness is a kind of fractal of the universal consciousness. And I mean, this is after all one of the deepest insights of the whole Rishi uh, tradition in India, the ancients. Mm. The Upanishads, those great um, mystical texts, um, that our consciousness, your consciousness, my consciousness, is uh, a part of that greater consciousness which underlies all things. I think it's fascinating that you mentioned them because being of Indian background, they were the science of the time when they were written. <laughs> and here we are again. Well, I mean, India led the world in what's now called consciousness studies. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and through exploring the nature of consciousness. And then, you know, out of that rich soil of meditative practice and ascetic and, and other spiritual practices, then the Buddha is a kind of offshoot of that tradition. I mean, after all, he lived in India and was part of that yogic tradition in India, and it's a kind of sect of Hinduism, really. I mean, that's the way Indians see it, it's the way I see it, and it's historically... The case it's an outgrowth um yeah. and it, it, the um i think what's so interesting is that this hindu understanding of consciousness uh, probably influenced the early greeks and you know the ancient greek philosophers and and there were trade routes from india through to the mediterranean world the road, yeah Yes, and the, 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 these, this understanding, and now again through yoga and through meditation, this has become a kind of universal uh, all over the world. You can do these things. And they tie us into that way of becoming aware of the ground of our own conscious being. And I think that they have lessons which other religions can learn from. I think all religions have their strengths and their weaknesses. And I myself lived in India for seven years, and I was, I'm very influenced by the Indian tradition. Uh, but I'm also a practicing Christian, and because I think it's important to be linked to one's own tradition. Mm. And um, But I'm a Christian who meditates. I have a Christian mantra, but I meditate every day. And I, that's certainly a practice I learned in India or from India. And I think we're now seeing within the realm of religions a kind of cross-fertilization influences from one to another. I mean, all religions evolve, they always have done. I mean, Hinduism today is not the same as in the 5th century BC, when, although it's influenced by it, rooted in it, but there's a continuous evolution, and part of that evolution is the ongoing evolution of meditation methods and yoga, um, which have now gone to many people in the West and in Australia and places, and now there's all sorts of yoga teachers developing it in their own. Yoga itself is undergoing evolution. Mm. Um, um, so um, so we, uh, I think in our own lives and culturally, we, we have always this combination of habits and evolution of 
of, of what's habitual and which we need. We, without habits, we'd be chaotic. We'd have nothing would stabilize. Mm. Um, but also um, this kind of freedom and a growing awareness of the possibility of spiritual and conscious evolution. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think that speaks to aggressively the cross-pollination of religions in the special time that we have now where the access to information with the internet perhaps highlights why there is such a spe- uh, special spiritual revolution as well. And I think, um, again, you know, your book, uh, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work and the, the different things that are listed in there, such as meditation, such as fasting, and all those things can really help you um, go on that journey, even just looking at how different those seven things are. You know, we're talking about fasting, something that's, you know, from a particular, could be rooted in a particular type of like Ayurveda speaks a lot to fasting and we've got meditation. Then we've got sports, which is, you know, Western. And then we've got all these different types of like South American practices with plants. And it's incredible, you know, uh, just the different things that are on offer and how exposed we are. I look at my own life and, you know, we, you mentioned yourself, you know, you wake up, you have yoga for, you know, something from Hinduism and then you go to work, I'm sure in like a, in a, in a building that is, uh, has Christian influences and, you know, all these different things that, you know, consistently bleed into our life. It is a very fertile time. And, um, yeah, there is, uh, I'm acutely aware that I feel like I personally could just speak to you all day, every day, and just continue to ask you a million more questions, but I am really, really conscious of your time as well. Um, so I just, um, I want to just ask you one last little question, which is, you know, we were talking a little bit about morphic resonance and how things communicate through the space and time. Um, one of my deepest fascinations, and this is completely going into like an archaic way of thinking, um, but I'm not sure if it's stale or if it's really ripe, um, is I have this deep fascination for, you know, what is the connection between, you know, uh, the earth has a very, you know, profound effect spiritually. The fire does as well as does water as does air. Um, I have this fascination around the ether because I don't, I guess it's not palpable or it's not something that's in my direct experience. Um, I feel like I can connect and pray to the earth and the food that I eat. I feel like I drink and hydrate. I am 70% water like, and cleansing feels really good when I bathe. The sun obviously brings me the food and the sustainability that it does. Breathing through my meditation practice is something I'm really connected to. When we talk about morphic resonance and you say there are certain things that are, you know, it can, like there's that continuation of memory perhaps or our mind being beyond where we are, uh, something that is poignant for me perhaps, you know, and I may be completely off topic, but what comes up for me is, is there something in the ether? Is there something that weaves everything together that is perhaps holding a memory collectively for us to tap in and out of or the information can pass through and from? Or is this, have I reached too far? Well, I don't know. The, the thing is that the, um, you know, the five elements in Hinduism, earth, air, fire, water, and akash, mm. which is, sometimes translated ether, sometimes translated space, mm. um, uh, is actually, I think, perhaps, I think of it myself as, as not, not really ether, because ether was what in the 19th century people thought was the basis of electromagnetic transmission. You know, Maxwell thought that light rays were traveling through the ether, and then Einstein abolished ether in physics in 1905 and said no, there's no such thing as ether um, as subtle matter. Ether was thought of as subtle matter. There's just the electromagnetic field. Mm. Now, I think actually fields are probably the best way of thinking of ether, that the whole universe is permeated by the universal gravitational field, which is invisible, and it's not made of subtle matter. Fields are more fundamental than matter in modern physics. Uh, matter is vibratory patterns of activity within fields. Um, so um, the whole universe is made up of the gravitational field, which, as Einstein said, is not in space and time. It is space-time. It gives the structure to space-time in which everything else happens. And then the electromagnetic field, which enables the light of distant stars to reach us over billions of light years, um, is, is another universal field. The whole universe is filled with this electromagnetic field, which is why we can see stars and pick up signals from distant quasars by radio telescopes, because radio waves are another kind of um, electromagnetic radiation. Um, so, uh, and then our own fields, so the morphic fields which shape 
all organisms, plants, animals, and, and things like crystals and solar systems, the organizing fields within and around everything um, are, again, uh, there's no extend invisibly around them, like a magnetic field is in a magnet and extends around the magnet. Um, I think our minds are made up of fields which extend far beyond our brains and our bodies. Uh, that's a whole other topic. Um, um, so uh, my own view is that these fields um, are one way of thinking about Akash in, in the modern context, whereas ether was a kind of 19th century terminology derived from science. Um, but I don't think that the memories, um, the theosophical people sometimes talk about the memories of nature as stored in what they call the Akashic record, mm -hmm. as they're somehow stored in the ether. They think of it as a kind of 19th century ether, really. But I don't think that memories are stored anywhere. Uh, the whole concept of memory storage uh, treats memories as if they're things in space, because storage takes place in space. Right. Um, whereas memories are not spatial in nature, they're temporal. A memory is a relationship in time. If I meet somebody I've met before and I recognize them, um, it's uh, all that I'm aware of is the fact I knew that I knew them then, I recognize them now. There's a connection across time between meeting before and now. That's what I would say is a resonance. The idea that in between meeting then and meeting now, an image of them has been stored somewhere. somewhere. It's a theoretical construct, mm. um, not an experience. And, and the materialist theory of memory says, well, memory has to be material because everything is material. Therefore, all memories must be stored somewhere. Right. And they must be stored inside your brain as memory traces. Now, no one's ever found these memory traces, uh, but the assumption is they must be there because everything memory has to be material has to be material by definition. Back it's to one what of the dogmas. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I think that the um, the, the Akash the um, is thought is best thought of as in terms of fields, mm. um, which are not the same as earth, air, fire and water, they extend beyond that, uh, but they're still part of, it's still part of physical nature, these fields, mm. these different fields. Um, and these fields have a kind of inherent memory given by morphic resonance, but it's a resonance across time rather than being actually stored mm. in the field. Um, and so when we see it as a resonance, then we don't actually have to say, well, there must be out there some kind of cosmic memory bank, like right. finding or hard drives or uh, I mean a lot of people imagine that the internet with the cloud on the internet is like that it's not actually out there as a cloud it's in server factories in mm. various parts of the world using vast amounts of electricity Space and, yeah. yeah so it's not as if it's actually delocalized so mm. um, but the morphic resonance is it's a resonance across time on the basis of similarity anyway that's the hypothesis and I think that makes sense of most of the uh, idea of memory. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the idea of a memory in nature is not a shocking new idea. It's part of the traditional philosophy of nature. And, um, and I think that the idea of morphic resonance fits very well with that tradition, those traditional views. Yeah, thank you so much for illuminating that for me. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for not just your time here today, but just um, the individual that you are humbly from this space where I am reflecting back at you, just the amount of work that you've put into writing 80 journal articles, all the 10 books you've written, but also just the individual that you are, Rupert, to consistently be one of inquiry um, and just the what I see as being the purity of the inquiry that you that you behold and that light that you hold. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that and obviously your time here today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and keep up the good work. I'm so glad you're sharing ideas and, and stimulating thought. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, I personally found Rupert, um, rupertsheldrake.org. There's an amazing bunch of resources there that you can just... Sheldrake.org. Oh, I'm pretty... Okay, sheldrake.org. Thank you for yes. clarifying. And, um, yeah, is that probably the best place for people to connect with your resources? 
um, yes. outside of your books? There's a link to my YouTube channel where there's lots of YouTubes as well. Perfect. Um, so I'll add links to both the website and the YouTube. Um, yes. So the best place to go, really, to starting point is sheldrake.org, the website, yes. <laughs> thank you so much again. Oh, thank you. Hey, Tribe. Thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of The Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health, and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect, so I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amrit-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.